from time to time as my wife or I are perusing uh, the internet, different uh, social media apps perhaps, or, or other things, we'll come across a, a statement, a meme. You know what a meme is? You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's often a funny or humorous statement, sometimes with a visual or something like that. We'll come across something that we want to share with the other one. My wife came across one not too long ago uh, that says this, I made some bad decisions, but at least I didn't buy a 2020 planner. <laughs> How about that? Because all those plans just went right out the window, didn't they? Did you make any plans for 2020? And if you did, how has that worked out for you? Have you had to make some adjustments? Of course you have. Well, back in the spring, actually before that, uh, Sarah Fannin and Lou Freeze made plans for a spring wedding. It was going to be a big wedding. Well, they had a wedding, but it wasn't exactly what they had planned. I think maybe there were a dozen people uh, in the sanctuary for that wedding. But they did get married even though they had to make some adjustments. Several of us were planning on a, a trip back in late spring, another trip, one of our twice annual trips to Turkey uh, to renew fellowship with our friends and, and cultivate other relationships. Well, that didn't happen. It doesn't look like we're going to have a trip to Turkey this year year and who knows about next year some of you no doubt planned vacations either summer or otherwise well how has that worked out have you made, had to make adjustments either you know changing those plans somewhat or maybe even canceling them all together what about vacation bible school right Katie and Neva made their plans for the, a regular vacation Bible school like we always do, using the Answers in Gen Genesis material and curriculum and, and all that we do. It was going to be in June and then August. Well, it, it did happen in August, but it certainly was different than it ever has been. All of this is a reminder to us that we can make plans, but we cannot guarantee that those plans will be able to be carried out the way that we hope, the way that we intend. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. That's a reminder to us that while our plans have been interrupted this year, God's plans have not. Nothing that has happened in, in this year through this pandemic has affected in the least God's plans. God who reigns sovereignly over his universe has all of this under control. We're reminded to make our plans with humility. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Well, that brings us to Psalm 132. Well, what we find in Psalm 132 is we read about plans that David, King David, had made for the Ark of the Covenant, also simply called the Ark of God at times, when he became king over Israel and established his throne in Jerusalem. He made plans to bring the Ark to Jerusalem and eventually to build a house for the Ark. And what we see here is that while David made plans, good plans, God had better plans for David as well as for the ark. 
I'm going to read Psalm 132. And we're, I'm also going to be making reference uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7 because those chapters serve as a background to this psalm. It's a longer psalm for, from what we've been looking at. It is the longest of what's called the Psalms of Ascent. And a reminder, these are the psalms that we believe that the Israelites would sing as they made their way up to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts that they were required to attend each year. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place of the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, <clears throat> do not turn away the face of your anointed one. <clears throat> the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. <clears throat> he has desired it for his dwelling place. I think I need a drink. <clears throat> this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest... I will clothe, oops, well, <clears throat> I need a third hand. <clears throat> her priests I will clothe the salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown shall shine. Now, you'll notice that this psalm really is, is a prayer. We in two places, we find requests being made by the author of this psalm, which was undoubtedly one of David's descendants, one of the kings, possibly Solomon. Many people think it was Solomon. Asking the Lord to remember his covenant with David. So it's really a prayer. But in this prayer, we find the author reminding the Lord, as it were, and us, of the plans that David had made and then the plans that God had made and was bringing about. He recaps those plans. So what, what I just simply want to point out, three things. Two directly from the text and one application for us. The first is David's plans. The second is God's plans. And the third is our plans. So let's look at David's plans. I've already touched on this, but, but the situation is this. After David became king over all of Israel, he wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem, where his throne was. Now, the ark was not a big boat, okay? Not like Noah's 
ark. This is a different ark. Um, in case all you know about the Ark of the Covenant, you learn from Indiana Jones. Let me explain what it was and why it was important. All right. The ark was a wooden box, about a yard long, 18 inches high and deep, and it was covered with gold. God had given instructions for making the ark, ark of the covenant or the ark of God, for, and for how it was to be built, along with his instructions for the tabernacle, which is where sacrifices would be made. The ark was to be placed in the most holy place in the tabernacle. And on top of, of the ark, the cover of the ark was called the mercy seat. It was made of pure gold. And that's where, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. It's the only time anyone was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would offer a sacrifice, for, first for himself and his family, and then another sacrifice for the sins of the people. This is where the ark uh, was in, in the most holy place, and that covering was called the mercy seat because it was there that, that God atoned for the sins of His people. Now, the ark had been in different places. Whenever the people, it had been carried with the Israelites throughout the wilderness wanderings, and it would always lead out. The priests would carry the ark uh, on their shoulders, poles that ran through rings on the corners of the ark. The priests would lead out, and they would carry the ark, and the people would follow. And whenever they camped, whenever the, the cloud would stop and the people would camp, then they would put up the tabernacle and have the, the ark in the, uh, in the Holy of Holies. Now, after they entered the promised land, the ark's first home was in Shiloh. But then it moved to other places, first to Bethel and then to Mizpah, but for 20 years before David became king, it had been in a place called Kiriath-Jerim. And there's a story behind that, a battle that took place with the Philistines and how the Philistines captured the ark, but they didn't want it very long because of problems that that caused for them. But anyhow, it had been at Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years. And so David, learning, knowing where it was, he wanted to be in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where his throne was. Jerusalem is where the tabernacle was going to be and, and eventually where the temple would be. So David made plans to bring the ark <coughs> to Jerusalem. And we read that, we read about how it happened in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, just note that <coughs> I'm not going to take the time to read it. It didn't go real smoothly because the first time David tried to move it, he didn't do it according to the instructions that God had given uh, to the Israelites. The priests didn't carry it on poles on their shoulders. They tried to move it on a cart. But anyway, you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But then eventually they did bring the ark to Jerusalem. And that's what we read uh, in verses 9, excuse me, 8 and 9, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. They're bringing the ark to Jerusalem, and this is what the people are shouting. This is what the people are crying out. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. So the, there's this great celebration. And again, you can read about that in 2 Samuel 
chapter 6. Now, what I want to do is point out some things about David's plans. First of all, David's plans were good plans. David wanted to honor God. He wanted God to be glorified. He wanted the ark, which represented the presence of God, to be where he was and where the the capital of the land, the nation of Israel, was going to be. David's plans were not rebuked like some of our plans. You know, James writes in James chapter 4 about some of the plans that we sometimes make that are more selfish and self-centered. If you want to turn to James 4, beginning in verse 13, in case you need to know, that's close to the end of the New Testament, toward the back. James 4, beginning verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, For him, it is sin. These are not God's words to David. David was not selfish or self-centered in his plans. His desire was for good. He was motivated by a love for the Lord and his desire for the ark to be where he was and also for to have a more prominent and permanent resting place. Personally, David wanted his life to be centered in God and his presence. And what better way to do that than to have have the ark and the tabernacle and ultimately the temple right there, right where he lived, as a reminder to him of God's presence with him and with the people, because that's what the ark represented to the people. It represented God's presence with them, along with God's power and God's pleasure for them. David's intention was good. He also wanted, as I indicated, that the Lord's ark, his presence, would have a more prominent place. What was Kiriath-Jerim? I mean, it was, it was some backwater town, you know, and Jerusalem was going to be the capital. Jerusalem, in fact, in Israel's history, it was the place, right? It was the most prominent place. Zion, God's holy hill. It's where God put his name. And so David wanted the Lord's ark, the presence of God, to have this prominent place. But what we can see here is that even when we have good plans sometimes, that doesn't mean it's the Lord's plans. Now, part of David's plan were successful, right? He was able to move the ark to Jerusalem. But there was a second aspect to David's plans and that was to build this permanent place for the ark that is to build a temple the tabernacle was always intended to be temporary it was ideal for the wilderness because it it was made of skins and poles and temporary uh, materials it could be set up and taken down fairly 
easily. Whenever the people had to move, they could take it down and they could take it with them. But now, now that the kingdom was established, now that David was in Jerusalem, he wanted a permanent place for God's dwelling. And we read about this, and we will turn to it, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, don't y'all fall asleep on me with all this history, okay? It, there's a point to it. <clears throat> 2 Samuel 7, beginning of verse 1. We're going to read 17 verses, so I would encourage you to follow along. It's easier to do that if, you're, if you have a Bible in your hands. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make, you a great, make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. How about that? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David this brings us to the second half of this psalm in verses 11 and 12 we read this the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. David planned to build a house for God, but God planned to build a house for David. Now, not a physical house, but a a lineage. David, I mean, God planned to give David, to establish David's throne and his line, his sons after him. God's plan was better. Rather than David build, God 
a house. The Lord said, no, your son, one from your own body, he'll build the house. And I'll establish your kingdom through him and through your descendants. And it will be a permanent kingdom, a permanent covenant between me and you. That's what we see here in verses 11 and 12. That's what the psalmist is referring to. Now we know that Solomon did build a house for the Lord. He built the temple. It became known as Solomon's temple. We know that Solomon had a great beginning. He was given wisdom to rule the people. We know that as great as the kingdom was under David, and it was great, it was even greater under Solomon. But then things began to go a little wonky. Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord because he had multiple wives and alliances with other nations and things that that turned his heart from being truly, completely committed to the Lord. And throughout the rest of Israel and then Judah's history, there was a mix of kings. Many of them did not have the kind of heart that David had. Not all of them were a man after God's heart as David had been. What we see here is that there is both a temporal fulfillment, but also a long-term fulfillment. Often in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we find that there, is a, there are prophecies being made or promises being made that have an immediate application, but then they have a much longer application. And this is one of those examples. James Boyce, in his commentary, notes this. He says, There are two levels of promise here. The first being a promise to the heirs of David that they would not cease to occupy the throne of David as long as they keep God's covenants and statutes. The second is a promise of the divine Messiah who alone would perform all the requirements of the law and rule forever. The promise of a Messiah is always in the background when God's covenant with David is mentioned. But it becomes fairly explicit here when God speaks of Zion, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit in throne, for I have desired it. God's plans involve not just David's kingdom, David's reign, but it involved the establishment of David's throne beyond his lifetime and even beyond any of the Old Testament kings who followed David. You see, after the fall of Judah to the Babylonians, there were no more kings who sat on the throne who were of David's lineage. But we see that there was one who was of the line of David, who was of the house of Bethlehem, who came from David's lineage, who fulfills this prophecy perfectly. And we see in Luke chapter 1, at the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah, who was John's father says this, beginning of verse 67 of Luke 1. If you have it, 
or if you're looking for it, I'll give you a moment to find it. Read this, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. We'll come back to this, but that is almost a direct quote of Psalm 132, 17 and 18. Those verses refer to the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Zechariah goes on, "...to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child," speaking of John, "...will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways." to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says the birth of John the Baptist is the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy that's made here in Psalm 132. It's not about David particularly. It's not about one of his physical descendants in the Old Testament. It's about the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, David had a good plan. God had a better plan to build a house, a line for David that will be fulfilled ultimately in the sending of his son, who was, yes, physically, humanly, of the seed of David, but also the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would, through His death and resurrection, who would earn the right, so to speak, to sit on David's throne and reign forever and ever. Paul writes, and we've looked at this many times in Philippians 2, about how Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we read this, verses 8 and 9, of the Son, speaking of Jesus, he, that is God, says, your throne, O God, Your throne is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And in Revelation 11, 15, we read this. The kingdom of this world had become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And ever. God had a better plan for David than David had for himself, but also for God. So that brings us to the application. Our plans. Our plans. What are some lessons, some things we can learn about our plans? About your plans? About my plans? First of all, we need to ask ourselves, 
Are our plans motivated by a love for God and for His will to be done in every area of our lives? David was motivated by love for God and for His glory and with the desire to worship Him for the Lord to be at the center of His life, which would be represented physically, but also would be the case spiritually. David wanted a constant reminder of who had blessed him, who had made him, and who deserved his worship and his obedience. God's will, God's glory, should always be at the center of our plans. Of course, we need to understand that this begins with our attitude towards God and our relationship with Him. It begins with understanding that we don't naturally have the kind of loving relationship with God that He intends. That, as the Bible says, our sins have separated us from the Lord. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of our sin is death. But God has made it possible. He has provided for all those who will repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ to be restored to a right relationship with Him. So you can't really have plans motivated by a love for God if you don't love God. If you don't have this kind of loving, trusting relationship with the Lord. That's where it begins. And we should understand that anything that's contrary to God's will as revealed in His Word is not to be part of our plans. That's why we need to know God's Word. That's why we need to give ourselves to God's Word. Your Word, Lord, I have hidden my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. What is sin? Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will. And where do we know God's will? In His Word. And only in His Word. So we need to know the Word. And we need to understand. It doesn't matter how good it feels. It doesn't matter how much we want it. It doesn't matter how right it seems. If it violates God's Word, if it contradicts God's Word, it is not of the Lord and should not be part of our plans. I'm amazed. Maybe I shouldn't be, but I am. At conversations I've had sometimes with people professing to know the Lord, to want His will, who will say either in these words or something like this, well, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but. Yeah, I know what the Bible says, but you don't know my situation. You don't know how important this is to me. You don't know how much I need this. If it violates God's word, it cannot be part of our plan. Well, it can be, but not if we want to walk in obedience to the Lord. Another thing that we need to see from this is that even if we believe our plans are in accordance with God's will as revealed in His Word, there needs to always be an attitude of 
we're going to do this if the Lord wills, right? We need to understand that while it may seem to us it doesn't violate God's word and it seems like a good thing for us to plan, for us to do, we need to understand that we don't know everything, right? And God may have a better plan. And can I just say, God's plan's always better. It's always better. It may not feel like that sometimes. It may not look like that, but it is. God, who knows the end from the beginning, who has planned the end from the beginning, who has a good purpose and plan for His people, His plans are always better. So that just because God may change our plans does not mean that He's mad at us. It doesn't mean that He's lost control. It doesn't mean that we've done something wrong necessarily. It means that He has something else, something better, and we need to trust Him. So, when we make plans, when we consider plans, we need to ask, how will these plans affect my ability to honor the Lord? How will it affect my ability to walk in obedience to the Lord, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to do the Lord's will in my life? Can I just give you an example? I'm going to anyway, whether you give me permission or not. Um, more than once, I've known people to make decisions involving a move to a new location that was a voluntary decision it wasn't like their business relocated them to to a new place but they made a decision to move to a new place far away from where they lived and where they were involved in the local church only to realize when they got there they couldn't find a good church they couldn't find, find a place to, to worship and grow, a, a place where they believed they could really serve and honor the Lord. In fact, I'm not going to name any names, but I've actually had a phone call from someone who, in that situation, said, would you consider coming here and, and planting a church here so we could have a good church? To which I said, no. You didn't have to move there. My point is, we should consider, how will this decision, how will these plans enable or not, me, enable me or not, to continue to walk in obedience to the Lord, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't figured it out, I didn't announce it, the title of this sermon is God's Better Plans. God's plans are always better. Even if we have really good, God-honoring, God-centered plans. If He chooses to change them, they're better. It may not seem like it in the interim, all right, in the moment, but they are. C.S. Lewis speaks to this. He addresses this in his book, Mere Christianity. He's addressing it from the standpoint that God is working to make us like Christ. And sometimes, as he does that, it doesn't necessarily look to us like the kind of thing we would choose. Here's what he writes. Imagine yourself as a living house. 
God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building up a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. He knows what he is doing, even if we don't. Just one more point. There is someone else who has a plan for your life. And he'll announce it as a better plan, a good plan. The scripture says that he appears as an angel of light. But his plans are always deceptive. Do you remember how good he made his plan sound in the garden? In Genesis chapter 3, we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Doesn't that sound like a good plan? So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. How'd that work out? Not so well. God has better plans. God knows what he's doing. Follow his word because it reveals his will. And if he chooses to change your plans, it means he has something better. So make your plans, even for the rest of 2020, as, as best you can. But make them in accordance with God's will as revealed in His Word. And understand, again, that if God changes them, He knows what He's doing. He's got something better, not just for time, but for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for what we are learning as we have considered these Psalms of Ascent, Lord, how you spoke to and through your people in days of old, but Lord, also how they speak to us, how you speak to us from your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to submit our plans, our lives, our intentions, our hopes, our dreams to you and trust you for your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.